if you want, open up to the book of John, chapter 2. We've been in a series uh, on Sunday morning going through the Gospel of John. If you don't know where that's at, just find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, we're just making our way bit by bit through this great book. So uh, I have a little bit of a um, kind of a cautionary uh, warning, uh, Jesus warning uh, notice that I need to kind of put out there. Uh, there is a tendency for us to think about Jesus a lot of ways, to think of him as gentle and kind and nice. Uh, what we're going to read today in the little text is uh, Jesus. That's a little bit of a different version of Jesus. He's, he's frustrated. He's angry. Uh, he throws down uh, his, his a whip in a in the temple, and uh, there's good reason for this, which we will get to in just a moment. But I just want you to at least be aware of the fact that we are moving into a, maybe a different version of Jesus than what most people are commonly aware of, or when they think about Jesus. Some of you may have thought about this or heard about this type of Jesus, but hopefully today you're going to come face to face with the reality of this Jesus, and hopefully it'll be life transforming for you. Uh, with that being said, we're going to look at this subject of him in the temple. But I thought it would be good before we even read the little passage here to think a little bit about the idea of temple. Um, most of us have no context when we think about temples. We don't worship at a temple. We don't really go to temples. We don't really visit temples. Um, so we don't have much of a context to even think about these things. Um, this was a very familiar idea in the ancient world, especially within Judaism. Um, so I thought it'd be good for us to just take a little bit of a deep dive into a historical, like, little four-minute history. Uh, hopefully you guys are cool with that, uh, through the Bible Project, and hopefully it will set a really good context for you to think about the idea of temple, and then we will get into the teaching. So here we go. go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but... Even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah. The building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting.
for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become many temples communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Okay, so with that being said, hopefully that gives a little bit of a context when we begin to read in the story about Jesus going into the temple. So if you guys want... John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. We're going to just go ahead and read through it. I'll make a few comments as we make our way through that. And then uh, we will just get into some of the teaching. So let's jump in. John 2, 13 says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And then making a whip of cords. This is the, the caution. Here's... Jesus is about to go terrace level and says, he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And then he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then his disciples, they remember that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. We pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, we believe, God, this is you speaking and informing and showing us and flushing away false ideas and false concepts that we have about who you are. Uh, we pray, God, that we would just make space, make room in our understanding, our imagination, our lives for this Jesus, this Jesus, and all that he entails, all that he was about, uh, as potentially uncomfortable this Jesus may make us. God, I pray that we would just receive all that you reveal to us about yourself. And we just commit our hearts in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning, I want to jump right in, and uh, as we've kind of been doing over the past few weeks, there's just kind of a little rapid-fire round, so we'll do another little rapid-fire round. Just, they're just kind of quick little things to make observations of. So number one, I think the another big obvious idea thing that's going on here is the Passover. So what is the Passover? Passover was one of the main holy days of the religious uh, followers of, of Yahweh throughout Israel. It was known as kind of like their celebration of their uh, deliverance. Uh, what 
we would closest type of holiday that we have would be like Fourth of July. So imagine Fourth of July on steroids, like extremely on steroids. So this was the most high and holy celebration of the Jewish year. Uh, it was everybody got very patriotic on this day. It was a way of remembering what God had done for them, uh, what God had done in their past, who they are in the present, what their hope in their future would be. Uh, it was also a time throughout the year that. Everybody that was non-Jewish, especially if you worked for the Roman Emperor, uh, you were on high alert because this was a day. If there was going to be some form of a terrorist attack launched under your watch, this would be the day that's going to happen, right? Imagine, um, again, this is kind of when we get into Jerusalem, the next little thing to think about is the the city of Jerusalem. This was the central city. Uh, It was the capital of the ancient Jewish world. So on this particular day of Passover, uh, we're told, according to historians, that the city of Jerusalem would swell to between 1 million to 2.5 million people. Imagine. Imagine. Uh, it was absolutely packed everywhere you would go. Uh, it was, again, like 4th of July at Pismo Beach. All right? Just imagine thousands. and I mean, like, literally, on the beach, at Pismo Beach, I've been told that it can get up to 30,000 people on the beach. That's mind-numbing to me. That's an entire city. That's like six times the size of Los Osos on the beach, all right? All non-locals, but that's cool. We love non-locals, but the point that I would make is this. The point that I would make is this, is that this, was, this would have been the time of the year that everybody would have been supercharged with the story of their past, the hope of their future, and uh, so everybody, especially as Roman soldiers were, they were on heightened alert during this particular season because anything could happen in this season. In fact, uh, it, according to history, they, when there were terrorist attacks that would take place in ancient Israel, it was typically on this day associated with this high level of patriotism. Uh, lastly, we see this idea of the temple, which we just saw a great little teaching on that. So again, all of these things, I think the, the main concepts to think about, this is a story about a holy day, a holy city, and ultimately a holy place, um, all of which Jesus comes into and has some things to say, and not just simply to say, but also to do or to act out, kind of like street drama, like we've been talking about, that Jesus oftentimes is dramatizing the message that he has to say. This, and I don't, I don't mean dramatizing in terms of acting. I mean, this is truly the actual way in which Jesus feels, which is exactly the way in which God feels. That's the big thing I want for us to take away and think about this. So there's three main things I want us to really think about with regard to the story that we just read. I'll break these down, and hopefully they will all make sense. So as we see Jesus, now I want to pause real quick and just talk a little bit about this imagery here. So this is actually, uh, you can go to Israel today and then around the city of Jerusalem. This is an actual, like, huge, massive, like, two-scale um image or uh, layout of the entire city of ancient uh, Jerusalem. Um, I left those people up there just so you can kind of see a little bit of the scale of this whole thing. So this massive, massive thing that was built, that thing right in the middle, that was called Herod's Temple, uh, or otherwise known as the Second Temple. Um, it no longer exists today. So if you go to Jerusalem today, you just simply see the remnants of it, or the Temple Mount is what, you're, what you've definitely seen on the news. So you see various elements of this. Uh, right in front of that temple, you see those steps right there? That would have been an area where Jesus probably would have commonly taught. Uh, he would have imagined hundreds of, of his followers around him as he's sitting there opening up scriptures and talking about a variety of topics. But the point of the matter is, this was the spot that Jesus would have gone to in the reading that we just read here. On this particular holy day, in this particular holy city. So with that being said, I want to just basically take a look at the, the three different things that we see that Jesus is doing. And now again... Imagine yourself as a first century receiver of this text. So you're reading the story of Jesus, maybe for the very first time. You have no idea who Jesus is. You might have heard rumors about Jesus. You may have met a great grandma that follows Jesus, but you don't really know much about Jesus. And we had just read last week the story of Jesus in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turns water to wine. So we see Jesus as like the awesome, like, life of the party, right? Making things really awesome. Because who doesn't want to have that friend that can just like miraculously turn and create 100 liters of the best wine, right? That's what Jesus does. But again, one of the things that we have to do is that when we look at the life of Jesus, it's not up to us to pick and choose the types of Jesus that we want. As followers of 
Jesus and the message that he promoted, we have to receive all that Jesus is. The bits and pieces that we absolutely resonate with and love and find absolutely amazing or adorable or awe-inspiring, as well as the elements of Jesus that are actually troubling. They should be troubling. That should cause us a little bit of pause to be like, oh, he's so friendly. I want to go hang out with him. Oh, wait, he's got a whip in his hand. What's going on with this Jesus? So what it means to truly follow Jesus is to receive all that he is. And as we do this, it it forces us to move slowly in terms of our consideration of who Jesus is. And it also means that we have to sometimes even bring those objections to Jesus and lay those down at his feet. Because if he truly is who the New Testament writers claim he to be, as well as Jesus himself claim himself to be, that he is the Lord of the universe, the Lord of all things, then that would require us to lay aside our objections, even those things that don't make sense to us, and figure out a way to somehow give ourselves over to him. And you know, think about it this way. That should not be too shocking, because in a sense, any type of relationship requires us. Uh, if one of these days, if you're not married, you will probably find a spouse, and you'll get married, and you will find in that spouse, there are elements in their personality trait that you just find highly like favorable and lovely and beautiful and good and other uh, traits that are just not, right? Um, that are actually off-putting and frustrating and hurtful. And that's not to say that they're... But what, what you do is you learn how to live with that person. Now, again, no human being is perfect. So therefore, Jesus, uh, that's where the you know, whole metaphor analogy radically fails and falls short. But fact of the matter is every relationship that you're going to covenant yourself to or give yourself over towards, you're working through these types of uh, character characteristic traits or elements that might be good and awesome and sometimes not. And same thing with Jesus, in that we have to think about Jesus on his terms and receive him as he reveals himself. So number one, I think what we see that John is pointing out to us about Jesus is number one, he's cleansing the temple. This is again, big, obvious E on the I chart, Jesus is cleansing the temple. Now, all accounts of the New Testament writings about the life of Jesus, we call them the Gospels, or the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them tell us the story of Jesus going in the temple. Now, again, if you have read through this before, you know that there's a little bit of controversy as to whether or not did Jesus do this at the beginning of his ministry or did Jesus do this at the end of his ministry? Because John seems to have this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All, the, uh, all three other accounts have it at the end of the ministry of Jesus. So, again, this raises all sorts of questions. Some even critical scholars are like, see, we know the Bible cannot be trusted because John says it was at the beginning. The rest say it's at the end. There's a contradiction can't believe it and you can't believe this and you can't believe anything about jesus therefore throw it all out it's inadmissible to a court of like life right um but other scholars are like why couldn't jesus have just done it both at the beginning and at the end and that seems to be the most plausible move next on all right the point that i would make is this again i just had to address that like elephant in the room in case it is an elephant in the room but the fact of the matter is is that jesus comes into the temple and it seems as if what he's doing is he's, he's obviously clarifying that whatever the temple was intended for, it has drifted. And therefore, as it has drifted, Jesus is obviously frustrated with what it has drifted over towards. He's not affirming of it. He's not happy with it. And why does this matter? Because Jesus claims to be a spokesman, a prophet of God. Even more than God, more than a prophet of God, I should say. He claims, obviously, and James has already, or John has already communicated that in the beginning was the Word. We believe that Word is God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became manifest. So we believe that Jesus is the fullest of the represented, representation of who God is. So whatever Jesus feels about a subject is exactly how the Father feels about a subject or a situation or a circumstance. In this particular context, we see Jesus was dramatizing God's frustration, or for another word to put for this, is zeal, over what I would think of it as the vandalization of his creative intention of this temple. So again, in a video we just saw, the idea of a temple was, was far more than just simply a brick and mortar in the city of Jerusalem. This was to be a visible representation or re 
presentation of the temple that God intended for all humanity. So again, I love the image that Eden was actually in and of itself supposed to be a temple, a, a place where heaven and earth cross over, come together, overlap. In other words, that which is heavenly, that which is divine, that which is invisible, that which is intrinsically good that represents God was to overlap with all that was physical or tangible or human. And it was to be over or infused with the life of God so that everything Adam and Eve and their offspring were to basically put their hands to or create was to create basically the spread of heaven all throughout this planet. And, and this is just my take and all the universe. Like, yes, that's a hint at like maybe even traveling to different planets. Yeah, I'm talking mind-blowing what God intends and has always intended for this incredible thing we call creation. However, what we live in right now, we live in right now is a system that was doomed to failure to launch. And it is directly the result of human agents that have brought about its vandalization. In other words, all human beings, you and I, we have all participated in kind of the corruption process, the, the brokenness, the, the elements of decay. All of us have been either sinned against we, or we play into the sinning against other people. And therefore, every single time this happens, it brings about brokenness, death, decay. And this is the exact same thing that we see taking place with this temple. This temple in Jerusalem was intended to be a, a place, a literal brick and mortar place that people from all around the world should have been able to show up at. And in that particular place, they should have been able to observe beauty, engage in worship, receive a sense of justice and healing. That's the whole intent of it. In fact, if you go back to the story of Solomon, who created the very first temple, he says this incredible prayer over this place. And he actually describes it as this, this uh, place for all the nations to come to. No matter who you are, no matter how far away you are from God, no matter how broken you are, how messed up you are, how much of a sinner you are, how much of sin you have been, how much sin has, sin has been done against you, how much of a victim you've been, how much of a victimizer you have been, you could come to this space and receive healing and wholeness and forgiveness and justice and cleansing. And be remade new. That was the hope. That was Solomon's prayer. But again, things in this world have to be stewarded by human agents. And human agents are infected with this virus of sinfulness. All of us play into the party of brokenness. All of us are contributors to this. All of us have been affected by this. And this is no exclusion that we see with regard to this. And so this particular place that was intended for beauty, worship, justice, healing, ultimately ended up beginning to drift over towards commercialization, corruption, injustice, and ugliness. So when Jesus shows up at the spot expecting worship, beauty, goodness, he sees commercialization. He sees people being alienated from God. He sees people that were once far from God coming in, wanting to draw near to God. Their hearts are open. Their imaginations are full of the possibilities of what could new life look like. And the moment they show up, he's watching them feel this ache or this, uh, this, this emotion of like, I can't get in. I want to get in, but I don't have the money to pay the premium price for that cattle or that cow or that animal that needs to be sacrificed. I mean, imagine this. If you came to church, let's just say, for example, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, okay? You come to church on Sunday morning. You, the first thing you're greeted with, I got to pay for parking? And we're like, you know, we got people out in the parking lot. We're like, it's only 50 cents. You're like, okay, I guess 50 cents. It's not that big a deal. Like, I'll, whatever, I guess I'll pay for parking. And then you come up a little bit closer. You get a cup of coffee. They're like, that'll be three bucks. You're like, three bucks? That's ridiculous. Like, Okay, whatever. I guess I'll pay it because I need a cup of coffee. Then you sit down. Someone comes up to you like, oh, did you pay for that seat? You're like, no. They're like, that'll be a 15 bucks cover charge. You're like, 15 bucks? Are you kidding me? I'm like, this is ridiculous. And now 
the service begins and we begin to sing. Like we give the first song for you for free. And then the second song, they're like, okay, great. That was the freebie. Now you got all got to pitch in and pay a little bit. It's 25 bucks a ticket. You're like, wait, what? And then we go around like, hey, anyone needs a Bible? You're like, I need a Bible. They're like, okay, 60 bucks for that thing. You're like, this is not even like leather bound. Like whatever. By the time you begin to tabulate all this, begin to realize it's costing you hundreds of dollars. At some point, you're just going to tap out and be like, I'm done. I'm done. If this is what the whole God thing is all about, or this is what it means for me to draw near to God or receive goodness and beauty and forgiveness and wholeness and be made alive again, then I'm done. And Jesus is realizing that, that there's some degree of this happening, and he's frustrated by it because the very intentions of his heart was to create this space where a world was, was filled, flowing with his free grace, his goodness. And yet you have these people... Uh, profiting off of it in some inexorbitant type of ways. And so it all leads to this level of ugliness. So this is one of the reasons why this quote, uh, this passage is quoted, uh, it says, zeal for my father's house. Psalm 69, verse 9. And this is the idea that I think Jesus embodies this raw emotion. Do you know that Jesus loves? But the counterpart to love is also hate. I mean, hatred actually is ultimately rooted in love. Because if you love something, then when you see that something that is the object of your love being broken or marred or vandalized or ruined or destroyed or marred, that all of, you begin to realize that something needs to be done. And there's the, the first thing, something that needs to be done is this sense of emotion. Apathy is the opposite of that. God has no apathy. God has, has, has passion, zeal, for when he sees his good work, his good creation being destroyed. So one of the things I think that's important for us to first of all notice is with regard to the cleansing of this temple, that, that this is sort of an image, I think, as we even get through the book of Revelation, that again, John wrote not only this gospel account, but he also wrote the book of Revelation. Um, and it kind of dawned on me that the book of Revelation is kind of like chapter 2, the verses that we just read of the book of John on big macro level. In other words, what Jesus did for the temple and cleansing it, Jesus will do for all creation, cleansing it, removing all of the evil and the brokenness that's here. Uh, the book of First John, again, written by this guy John, it says that uh, Jesus came to undo the works of the devil. Think about that. There's, there's a few statements throughout the New Testament that describe why Jesus came. Jesus came to heal the poor. Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. There's these mission statements about the life of Jesus. One of those mission statements about Jesus is Jesus came to undo the works of the devil. And the, the devil, obviously, again, is a whole other teaching in and of itself, but this, this dark, evil force within creation that exists on and in this world, in this system, has its tentacles on, on everything. In all creation, and apparently on this temple, and it's being destroyed and marred and ruined. And Jesus comes to undo the works of the devil that have been destroying and corrupting this temple. So the first thing that we see, number one, is Jesus cleanses his temple. The second thing we see is that Jesus is also fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the disciples seem to be obviously aware of this because, for example, take a look at verse 17 and verse 22. These two little passages right here. Verse 17 says this, the disciples remembered, dot, 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 that it was written, zeal for my house, zeal for your house will consume me. And then verse 21, John remarks again, but as he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples then remembered. So twice, John tells us that the very followers of Jesus, while they're observing Jesus. So again, think about this in a hands-on, up-to-the-minute observation on their behalf. They're watching Jesus do the things that Jesus is doing. A lot of it, I'm certain, that doesn't make any sense. Again, the details that John tells about what Jesus does in the temple are kind of shocking. They should shock you. He takes a whip. He starts running around. you can go on YouTube, and I, I don't know why I watch this, but sometimes I like YouTube videos, and I look up different things like this, especially as it lines with this. And I actually found Jesus Christ Superstar. You guys remember that from, like, the 70s? It's horrible, by the way. But just just like most other Christian movies about the life of Jesus. But the point of the matter, this is, like, really exceptionally horrible. But the point of the matter is it, it shows Jesus as an absolute madman in the middle of the temple. Like, and it's 
put to really bad music. And it's just, it's just everything about it is just like, oh my gosh, horrible. But th- this is, I, I think to some degree, even though that's more of a caricature, to some degree, this is the image. Jesus would have been viewed as, as a terrorist running around. I mean, imagine, imagine downtown, farmer's market, someone coming down, overturning the tables, like causing chaos, ruckus, uh, just pandemonium. Immediately, it would not be far-fetched or uh, stretched of the imagination to assume that that person is terrorizing. The noun form of that is terrorist. That whatever Jesus is doing would have been perceived as very disruptive to all the stuff that's happening. If, if you're a Roman soldier on position that day, you would immediately see what Jesus is doing and immediately mark him like that is a man that is causing terror to the masses. And therefore, he is a destroyer, a perverter of order, and therefore needs to be marked or at least taken out. So what we see with regard to this is that Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. The disciples are watching this, trying to make sense of like, what is happening? Has Jesus gone crazy? Like, what is taking place right now? We don't understand this. We just came from a wedding where Jesus made wet, uh, water to wine, and this is incredible. But now we're watching another version of Jesus that's, we don't know how to categorize this. We don't know how to make sense of this. And at some point, at some point, they, quote unquote, remembered. Ah, this is, this is the heart of God. God actually hates this commercialization. God hates these roadblocks that are being put in the way by powerful people. These, God actually hates these systems that destroy and ruin goodness and justice and righteousness and worship. God hates these things. And so Jesus, as he's acting this out, I think he's fulfilling prophecy in this particular light as the disciples describe these are the passages that they're looking at. And now, what we see with regard to this, that Jesus later will actually describe. There's one of, this little passage, one of the little passages here that I, I just found really interesting. Again, listen to what it says. Uh, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus makes a statement. He says, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it again. Now, obviously, he's talking about the, the body of his temple. And the religious leaders are tripping out. They're like, well, it took Herod a long time to build this place. How can you destroy this thing? And so they're, they're on two different wavelengths, all right? Have, have you ever read anything by Jesus? You're like, he doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Welcome to the party. There's a lot of times Jesus says things that we just don't un, always understand. Give it time. Give it space. Sometimes the time and space that we need might be weeks, months, sometimes even years to really discern or make sense of it. But one of the things that we can go back to over and over and over again, that Jesus will always prove himself faithful and good because we believe who he claims to be. It could be that there's an impediment in our ability to receive and understand or make sense or to perceive. And this is exactly what we see with the disciples. At some point, they came to their understanding and they remembered what Jesus had said. But one thing I found really fascinating with regard to this is that Jesus is actually, when he says, destroy this temple, he's obviously referring to his body, they didn't get it, but he's, he's basically making the claim for another temple or, if you like, a replacement of that original temple. Now, I want you to think about this. Imagine living in a world where the sum total of your time, energy, training, background, nostalgia, the stories of your life growing up, the history that you had received, everything revolved around this temple. Everything revolved around God interacting with this temple. You remember from the youngest of age going to the temple because every year most Jews would make the pilgrimage. From wherever they lived, they would travel to Jerusalem. That's one of the reasons why there was up to 2.5 million people live, or there in Jerusalem for that week during the time of the, uh, the Passover because it was an essential time where they would come to gather and congregate. And so this was central. This temple was central to everything about you. But what Jesus seems to be saying very clearly, I am the new temple. And Jesus seemed to be indicating by his actions that he really meant this. So, for example, people come to him, and Jesus interacts with somebody. He's like, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven. And the disciples, as well as the religious leaders, are freaking out over this. It's like, well, what, what are you talking about? You can't forgive sins. Who do you think you are? You're, at, you're taking upon yourself the role of the temple. 
forgiveness of sins only comes by bringing a sacrifice to God at this holy space called the temple. And Jesus is like, no, 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 your sins are forgiven because I said so. He seems to clearly be indicating that he is the new temple. He's fulfilling the prophecy. And by the way, this is, this is awesome because it means that the temple is no longer located to space or time or brick and mortar, which means all of us right now, wherever you're at, whatever your circumstances, whatever types of victimizations you've encountered or endured or whatever types of victimiz- victimizer activities that you have brought upon upon other people, there is space for forgiveness for you right here, right now. Why? Because Jesus is here. That's really good news. And this is what I think John is chronicling for us, is that Jesus is also the fulfillment of prophecy. Lastly, I'm done. We also see that I think Jesus is warning that the days of this temple system are numbered, which obviously, if Jesus is indeed the new temple, which he seems to be clearly indicating, then that means that this temple that Jesus was standing in, are, are, they're coming to an end. They're numbered. There's a, it's time stamped. And this is actually really good news when you think about it this way. Now, I would say this is good news and bad news, and I'll get to a slide just a moment here, but don't get to that yet. But it's good news and bad news in, in two ways. If you are deeply devoted to the system that's connected to the temple, this is really bad news, by the way. If your livelihood is made off of that temple, if your sense of identity, your sense of worth, your sense of commercialism, if your sense of livelihood, if your sense of security, if everything that you find in life that gives you purpose and meaning and value is connected to that temple system, do you think you'd be threatened by this? Jesus being like, hey, I'm in the new temple. Absolutely, you'd be freaking out right now. In fact, you might even be freaking out so much so that you would consider conspiring to put him to death. Now you begin to understand a little bit of the picture. Why Jesus was crucified. He threatened to undermine everything that gave this system its livelihood. But what God is doing is he's stepping in to all of this and saying, hey, there is something new, something better, something longer lasting that is about to come forth. Some of you will enter into that and be blown away by its beauty and its goodness. And you will be floored by the magnitude of the forgiveness and the goodness that it brings to you. Others of you will be just straight up offended by it. And that seems to be exactly what happened with Jesus everywhere he went. He was having people that were following him, and they were willing to just sell everything or give everything away to just follow him no matter what. And then there were others that were like totally offended by Jesus. How dare you say that? I can't believe who you're hanging out with. I can't believe you just walked into the house of a prostitute and didn't do anything. There was no favors that were done, nothing that was nothing weird or, or, or odd that was off that was happening. You just showed that person dignity, value, and respect. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work with the systems of the world that we've been given. And Jesus is offensive. This is why I said before, we have to receive Jesus as he comes to us on his terms. As Westerners, and I would even say as Americans, and I would even say as most of us Californians, we have this mindset that we can kind of make a remix version of Jesus. We pick and choose. I like this version of Jesus, the Jesus that's all about social justice, the Jesus that's all about caring for the poor. But I don't really like the Jesus that talks about marriage between man and woman exclusively and keeping sex sacred in that context. I don't like that Jesus. He's offensive. And then there's others that are like, I like a Jesus that is all about sexual ethics, but the Jesus that talks about loving your enemies and loving those that, that live outside of the boundaries of your borders. Loving them? I don't like that Jesus. He's offensive. The Jesus that calls me to question my loyalty to my nation? I don't know if I like that Jesus. We have to receive Jesus on the terms that he comes to us as. Otherwise, what we end up doing is we craft and pick and choose and remix a bespoken version of Christianity 
that Christianity that is dependent upon your reconstruction at some point will fail you. And ultimately then, you won't be saved. It will fail. And when it fails, you will break with that flimsy version of it. And again, I I get it. There are times that Jesus says things that are deeply troubling and offensive and don't make a whole lot of sense to me. But all I'm doing is I'm casting and I'm inviting all of us to cast our vote, our life, our loyalty into the context of this Jesus who promises to take us to the place of knowledge, understanding, awareness, and life that he himself promises to deliver us into. And so with that being said, in conclusion, I want for us to think about there's good news and there's bad news. Because if in reality the warning about this temple and its system are numbered, the good news is this. Ready? All, I'll just read what I've written up here, all decay, injustice, death, and destruction that plagues the earth has an expiration date. And all who place loyalty in Jesus will share in his fate, meaning life, death, and resurrection, new life, and will one day see the end of all of this evil and experience renewal. Well, the bad news is all decay, injustice, death, destruction that plagues the earth has an expiration date. And all who place their loyalty in the systems which create it will share in its fate and experience its collapse. I mean, this is as simple what Jesus is describing, is that the system, like I said, if you place your confidence in the system, the, 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 the temple in its system is your hope and your delight as an eternal, unmovable thing that Jesus is saying when that thing fails and when it falls, and it did fall in AD 70, it was, it was destroyed, it was decimated. If that was where your hope was, when that thing gets decimated, your hope is decimated. But if you shift your hope and confidence from the systems of this world and the systems that have timestamps on them to being placed in Jesus alone, then what you find is the same fate that Jesus has. Yeah, you'll experience suffering. Yes, you will probably die. Kind of one-on-one do. But the hope is we have resurrection, just like Jesus had resurrection. And in conclusion, I wanted us to think about this. Because John ends this whole little section right here by saying, and I'll just read this little last section here. He says in verse 23, Now when he had come to Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed on his name or in his name, and when he saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men are people and did not need anyone to bear witness about him, for he knew himself uh, that what was in man. The point that John seems to be bringing to our attention is that, number one, people were actually turning to Jesus. They were believing in the message that Jesus had to say because of the things that Jesus was doing. And I want to finish with just a simple question to you. Like, what do you need? What do you need to fully orient your life around Jesus? What needs to happen? Like, what needs to take place? A miracle? Heavens open up. Someone turn water to wine. I'm like, seriously, like, in all honesty, what do you need? If there's something that could happen in your life, marriage healed, the malady that you're suffering under healed, a job that you're longing for or hoping for somehow, like, given into your lap, like, what, what circumstance or sign do you need that would become the thing that would shake your life to say, I trust Jesus, I give my life entirely over to him. What is that that you need? More importantly, really, like, what will you do about what Jesus has already shown to you? I think, honestly, if you look, the signs of Jesus breaking through and undermining the systems of this world are everywhere. You just got to look for them. I want to end with uh, just some art that might be familiar to some of you guys. I guess some of you guys familiar with Banksy. If you're not familiar with Banksy, you need to find who Banksy is and look at his stuff. He's phenomenal. But these are two images that just recently popped up over the past couple weeks. Guess where? Uh, Ukraine. And so there were, like, rumors that Banksy was kind of, like, showing up in Ukraine somewhere. You know, there were signs of Banksy around. If you don't know who Banksy is, he's this uh, really, really well-known artist, street artist, a graffiti artist, I guess, if you would, uh, that just shows up and just puts uh, very 
kind of, in some cases, very highly politicized uh, pieces of art in the most unexpected spaces. The add to the mystique of Banksy, nobody knows who he is. There's suspicion, like, we know who Banksy is. No, you don't. Nobody knows who Banksy is. He's just like this ominous, like, ambiguous guy that just shows up on these spaces, and you wake up one morning, and, oh, there's, there's a million-dollar piece of art right there in the middle of my city. So uh, what's fascinating about Banksy is he shows up in these spaces, and if you, again, if you look at his stuff, there be guarantee some of the artwork, they'd be like, oh, I'm totally familiar with Banksy's art because he's, he's an iconic figure. But this just showed up, and the image, obviously, is in the middle of a war zone, and it's a judo match between, obviously, a figure that's being taken down and a child. And you can obviously read between the lines and get the image as to what Banksy's trying to convey here, is that Putin, who obviously represents those coming in and attacking, uh, is being taken down. Again, uh, I'm not here to give any political commentary. I'm just simply pointing out the fact that what Banksy is doing here is deeply subversive. His message is simply to say, look, what you think is happening right now in the midst of destruction, death, decay, all around you, signs of life are there. Next one. Um, This is the one that just literally came up a couple days ago in the middle of a city. I don't even know what city it is. Um, uh, the image of just rubble, pure rubble. And he created, uh, obviously, um, an acrobat doing a balancing act on the rubble. And again, uh, I'm not going to give you my commentary on it, but the point that I would make is this, is that the signs of, of life are all around you. Jesus has begun something 2,000 years ago that we sit here today in California, you know, 2022, and we're, it, this is not just coming together as a group of people talking about church stuff. This is a subversive move in the universe, begun 2,000 years ago by the king of the universe. And we're invited to be part of this act, not as revolutionaries out to crush and destroy our enemies, but to radically love them. How? Because we move from being the enemies who were loved to becoming those who love our enemies. This is what Jesus does. He's cleaning the sanctuary of the cosmos. And he's inviting you to join. You thought you were just coming to church. No. You're coming to a cosmic cleansing. And you're invited to be part of it. This is so mind-blowing, what Jesus invites us into. And the, the, the project of renewal that he's launched... He invites everybody to be part of it, no matter how broken you are, no matter how unrenewed you feel, no matter how defiled you feel, no matter how much of a victim you've been, how much of a victimizer you have brought upon the lives of other people, no matter how much pain and sorrow you have incurred or condemnation you have felt or how much condemnation you have dished out or pain that you have caused, you are invited to be part of this renewal project. But Jesus says, I've launched it. And one day this entire cosmos is going to undergo this radical cleansing. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. But this is why it's so important. And I ask you again, what are you clinging to? What are your loyalties vested in? If you are invested in the decay and the death and the corruption and the systems of decay and death and destruction in this world, then when they collapse, you collapse with them. The invitation is to let go of those things and to cling tenaciously to the new work and relation that Jesus is launching in this world. And to completely devote your life and your livelihood to this work that Jesus is doing. And how can we do this on a really practical level? I'm done. Number one, just just love Jesus with all your heart. Like, think about ways in which you can devote your energy and your emotions and your sum total of all that you have to serving, to loving this Jesus because he's worth it. And then secondly, love is church. I literally can't think of anything more valuable on this planet, in this life, than to love Jesus and to love his church. Why is church? You tend to, again, it's easy to mis- mistake the understanding of like this institution where a bunch of messed up, weird, corny people who call themselves Christians assemble. Again, you're just seeing the war zone. You're not seeing the art. The art 
is that God has launched something. He's taken really broken, messed up people, and he's brought them together from all nations, all ethnicities, all walks of life, all economic levels, all parts of this world, throughout all history. And it says, this is where I will place my glory. This is the new temple where I will reside, and I will bring forth healing and unleash goodness through them. And then lastly, to join God's mission. mission. So one, love God. Two, to love others and all that God loves. Again, you cannot get anything more that Jesus loves than his people. He loves his people. And there's no worthy cause that you're going to find on this planet than to devote your energy to this. And then lastly, to join God's mission of doing good. It's one of the reasons why we say this over and over and over again as a church. Our aim, what we are looking for as a community of people, is to become this people that love God radically, love other people, no matter who they are, and to do good in this planet, to be a part of this project of renewal and restoration and healing that God launched. So I'm done. I'm going to invite you all to stand right now, and I'm going to pray over us. And then Jordan will close us off with some final words as well as an invitation for any of you all to, uh, to pray with us. So, Father, right now we just come to you and we ask you, would you just take our hearts, our lives, those broken places, uh, those things that we are holding on to that have been deeply distorted by the works of the devil, as well as those areas, God, in our lives that we are ashamed of, and we just lay them all down at your feet. We want to trust you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. So God, even if we bring our objections to you, any area in our lives that we just, those buts, those what ifs, those what abouts, we lay even those. We don't want to coddle those, love those, stroke those, worship those. We want to even just bring those things and lay them at your feet. We just we want to just give our hearts and our lives unreservedly to you, to that which you love, your people, and to the work that you're doing in this world of being agents of good. So we invite you, Lord, to come by your Holy Spirit in those places and begin even now to bring healing and wholeness as we come face-to-face with them. We don't deny them. We don't run from them. We don't turn away from them. We acknowledge them, and we confess them before you, and we invite you then to bring newness of life beyond them. So we thank you, God, for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives, and we pray for your strength as we move into this week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God, be yours.